Let's open in the Word of God to the Sermon on the Mount, as we find that in Matthew chapter 5. We come to the last section in the chapter this evening. I want to read from verse 17 through 20 and then pick up a reading later in the chapter. Matthew chapter 5 at verse 17, Jesus says this, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven." And then we go down to verse 38. Jesus is after that exhortation that your righteousness must exceed the righteousnesses of the scribes and the Pharisees, making application using different ones of the commandments. And we'll begin at 38, look at uh, reading 38 through 42, what we looked at last week, and then 43 through 48 is the text for the sermon. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that ye resist not evil. But whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. And then the text for the sermon, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We read this far in God's holy and inspired word. It's a rather long passage, and we could take it in a number of directions. And it's not my goal in the sermon this evening to tell you what Jesus does not mean in these words. We want to feel the power and the challenge of the words of Jesus here in his positive instruction to love your enemies and to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And because of that, I want, simply in the introduction, to tell you 
two things that Jesus is not saying here. The first is this. Jesus is not saying in these verses that God loves all men and is gracious to all men. That's the way some take verse 45, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. What Jesus is saying here is simply this, that in his providence, God gives good gifts to all, also to those who are evil and undeserving. So Psalm 145, verse 9, which we sang earlier, the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Jesus does not intend here to teach a universal love of God, but rather to show something of the character of God towards those who are wholly undeserving. And as God's people, we especially ought to understand that in regard to our salvation. And now be children of your Father in heaven. Second, Jesus does not, in the words of this text, love your enemies, teach us to go out and become friends with the world. The scriptures clearly state, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, but the sermon tonight is not a sermon about loving and not loving the world in that way. When Jesus says, love your enemies here, he's not referring to an attraction and a companionship, but rather to a deep spiritual concern that shows itself in kindness toward the undeserving. And so when he says, love your enemies, we're not to love the world in the sense of being attracted to it and forming companionships with its people, but we are to love the people of the world in this sense, that we are kind to them, and especially that in our deep affection for them, we yearn for, and in the words of Jesus here, pray for the salvation of their souls. So two things. Jesus is not teaching that God loves all men, and Jesus is not teaching us to become worldly and to love the world in that sense. In these verses, we come to the end of Jesus' teaching in which he's applying verse 20. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in the words of the text this evening, we have what is most certainly the, the most shocking and the most demanding of everything that Jesus has said thus far in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we looked at the fact that we should not retaliate, but return good for evil. This is what Augustine says. He says, Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. Think about that. We can turn the other cheek, but do we love the one who hurt us? This is so contrary, isn't it, to our sinful human nature that we must say this is a characteristic of one who's born again as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and one who knows 
God's love to him who was once an enemy. It's something experienced before it's expressed. So let's consider tonight this passage under the theme, Love Your Enemies. Notice first the correction, that is Jesus' correction. Ye have heard, but I say unto you. Second, the calling, and that's especially the calling to love your enemies. And then third, the reasons. Again, in this passage, the scribes and the Pharisees have distorted something in the Old Testament Scriptures. And there are three ways in verse 43 when they say, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy, that they have distorted the Old Testament Scriptures. And it's plain, especially from this instruction that Jesus is not refuting the Old Testament. He's not giving us some other new law besides or above the law of the Old Testament, but he is hitting the reset. He's taking us back to God's original intention and instruction in the Old Testament scriptures. So Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18 says this, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And what the scribes and the Pharisees had done was left part of that out, redefined part of that, and then added to it. And that's what we have here in verse 43. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. First, They distorted it by leaving part of the Old Testament requirement out. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. They left out those last two words, as thyself. Isn't this the most difficult part of the commandment to love? In Philippians chapter 2, it's put this way, that we have to put the needs of others before our own and esteem them better than ourselves. And this is what makes loving the neighbor so difficult for us, that I put away, must put away my pride in which I put myself above the other. And I must put away my selfishness in which I put my needs before the needs of another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Put away your pride And put away your selfishness. And because the Pharisees found that so difficult, they left those words off. Instead of, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, they said simply, love your neighbor. And that was very evident in the way they despised the poor. They didn't love them as themselves and put their needs before their own. And it was very evident also in the way that they put themselves above the publicans and the sinners. They didn't put away their pride and esteem better than self. Instead of love your neighbor as yourself, it was simply love your neighbor. So first they omitted something. Second, they redefined the clear meaning of the Old Testament requirement here. The Old Testament requirement in Leviticus 19 verse 18 Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And this is what they said. Here's Hebrew parallelism. The second part of the verse says, Love thy neighbor as thyself. The first part mentions the children of thy people. So the neighbor is the children of thy people. 
and they limited the neighbor to close relatives, people that you were very familiar with. Not even uh, all of Israel, but just your family. Love your neighbor, they said, meant love the people who are closest to you. And you remember that in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, this was exactly one of the questions of the scribes as they came to Jesus. And he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus told him, keep the commandments and so on. And what's the greatest commandment? Love your neighbor. And then he says this to Jesus in Luke 10, verse 25, who is my neighbor? And that, of course, is one of their great challenges against the Old Testament law. And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan in contrast to the priest and the Levite who had the thinking of the scribes and the Pharisees that this bleeding man on the side of the road was not their neighbor, so they didn't need to help him. Jesus tells of the Samaritan who was a neighbor to the poor dying man. So they redefined the Old Testament law. And then third, they added to the law, and you see that in verse 43, love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. They turned a positive commandment to love into a commandment to hate. See that? And then they used it to justify their not just holding grudges and taking vengeance, but They're despising, and they're harming, and they're neglecting anyone outside of their circles. They said, you must treat those close to you well, but you can treat whoever you want outside of your circles, however you want. And that's the first question for us tonight. Has this ever been your attitude and your behavior? And what it reveals in the end is a heart that hasn't been changed or gripped by the gospel. And that's Jesus' point in verses 45 through 47, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. And then verse 46, for if ye love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. In other words, natural fallen man is capable of love towards those who are just like him. People show kindness to those close to them because it's a matter of personal survival in this world. It's really a selfish love. But that's not gospel love. I read this in a commentary, and it's an application to the church. Many churches seem cold and unwelcoming to visitors, but almost every church thinks it's friendly. Why? Because members are friendly with their friends. They greet everyone who greets them. This is not not noteworthy. Genuine love keeps an eye open for the quiet, the awkward, and the friendless, and seeks them out. Who are you greeting? Who are you loving? In another place, Jesus says of the scribes and the Pharisees that they love their greetings in the marketplace, and it was a show of friendliness that was selfish. It served their own name. 
They wanted to be introduced. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be seen. And so they gave these great greetings in public. So you have there the distortion of the Old Testament commandment of Leviticus 19, verse 18. They left out part of the commandment. They changed the meaning of the commandment. And then they added to it that you should hate your enemies. How does Jesus correct this distorted view of the commandment. He does it primarily by teaching that your neighbor includes your enemy. They had created this distinction. Your neighbor and your enemy, two different categories. And Jesus says primarily here that your neighbor includes your enemy. And that's clearly founded on the Old Testament Scriptures. You see that when you turn to Leviticus chapter 19. In verse 18 is the verse that I read a little earlier, but you go a little further down in the chapter to verse 34, and Leviticus 19 says this, The stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And God is saying, you don't say the stranger is not your neighbor. You actually love him as yourself. And remember that you were strangers. And remember what I did for you in Egypt. And show that love. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5, you see that the law of love applies to enemies. Exodus 23, 4 and 5, If thou meet thy enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee, lying under his burden, and wouldest forbear to help him, thou shalt surely help with him. And doesn't it remind us there of the, the Samaritan and the Jew in Jesus' parable? Don't say, well, he's a Jew, he's a Samaritan. It's my enemy's ox, leave it. He won't know. No, the law says you must love your enemies. And the law of love applies to stranger and then to enemy. And so the Old Testament never endorses personal acts of retribution or abusive words towards others. We really looked at this last week in the previous verses, but in Proverbs 24, verse 17, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. In Proverbs 25, verse 21, if he's hungry, give him food. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. There's nothing in what Jesus says here that is not contained in the Old Testament Scriptures. I say unto you, love your enemies. Do good to them. Now, somebody's going to ask the question, what about the expressions of hatred in the Old Testament toward Israel's enemies? And there are two main examples of that that are brought up. One is the imprecatory psalms, that is, the psalms in which the psalmist prays for God's curse to come on God's enemies. The prime example of that is probably this in Psalm 139, verse 21. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. And then the other thing that raises this question is that in the Old Testament Scriptures, Israel were called to destroy and not spare their enemies when they came into the promised land. They even had to kill all the children. How do we answer this? And the first is this, that God or that the Scripture distinguishes between the enemies of God 
and our own personal enemies. The imprecatory psalms are never utterances of hatred for private injuries, but prayers for God's cause to be vindicated, not mine. And the scriptures teach us very plainly in the Old Testament as well that the neighbor is someone who God puts in our pathway. And whoever that neighbor is that God puts in our pathway, we cannot know whether they are elect or reprobate and base our determination to love them or not on that. God knows that. God knows the heart. And so even though in the Old Testament God clearly names the enemies of Israel, and we can know one of our enemies for sure, that's Satan, and we're not to love him, we don't know in our personal life who are the enemies. We can't identify and hate the works of darkness, and we certainly don't coddle up to and have an affection and an interest and attraction towards those who perpetrate those works of darkness, but always we're called to love those who are our enemies. And so God never condones mistreatment of even his enemies. Never condones even mistreatment of his enemies. David wept when his enemy was sick. He spared the life of Saul. And the New Testament makes plain that this is the way we are to love our enemies, by doing good to them and giving them food. And, and the New Testament in Romans 12 quotes from Proverbs chapter 25. So, there's Jesus' correction of the Old Testament law that brings us to the calling. And as we look at the calling, these are the questions that we have tonight. Who are my enemies? What is it to love them? And how do I do that? And those are the questions that we want to answer. Who are my enemies? My neighbor is anyone that God, put, God puts in my pathway and that can include my enemies. But who is my enemy? Jesus is talking here about your personal energy, enemy. Anyone who is against you, anyone who has wronged you, and anyone who is determined to harm you is your enemy. So Jesus describes the enemy's behavior in verse 44 this way, that they curse you, they speak evil of you, they hate you, that is, they despise you, they despitefully use you, that is, they will manipulate you in spiteful ways, and they persecute you. Primarily, these are people opposed to you because of your Christian faith. But this could be anyone who hates you or manipulates you. And sometimes, that can even be the people closest to us who in a conflict have turned against us. And Jesus says, love your enemies. The word for love here is the biblical word agape. This is not a love of feeling or a love of emotion, but it has to do with the will, with choosing. We are to love those whom we don't feel like 
loving. And so love is a duty. It's commanded. And Jesus gives us specific ways in which we are to carry out that duty. I read in a number of commentaries this week, and I I think this is helpful. We sometimes say, we, we make a distinction between liking someone and loving someone. There's a word in the Greek for liking someone, but the New Testament never calls us to like someone. It does call us to love everyone. And you understand the point, right? We are to love those whom we don't really like, to whom we're not really attracted. The Bible doesn't call us to like everyone, but it does call us to love everyone that God puts in our pathway, even those whom we don't like. And now you understand what I mean by love here is a duty, and love here has to do with the will. It's not about emotions, it's not about how I feel, but love is a choice to go against your feelings, to go against your emotions. Now, that's not to say that there's not an inner aspect to the love that Jesus speaks of here. There is and there ought to be a a deep spiritual pity that we have for those here who are called our enemies, especially those who persecute us because we're Christians. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 that love should come from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's the source of love. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so Paul himself in Romans chapter 9 verse 3 and 10 verse 1 expresses the deep longing of his own heart for the salvation of his unbelieving brothers and sisters according to the flesh. And he says even this, that he could wish himself accursed for them. He would give up his own salvation that they might be saved. And that comes, yes, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You challenged by this word tonight? I said it's probably, to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, the most challenging thing that Jesus has said, isn't it? Love your enemies. And Jesus tells us here exactly how to do that with three specific applications. The first has to do with the tongue. He says, bless them that curse you. Bless them that curse you. To bless is two things. To speak well of another. When somebody curses us, is that what we want to do? Speak well of them? And more than that, to bless them is to call down God's blessing on them. That is, to implore God that He would bless them. That's how you are to respond to enemies who curse you. Who say evil things against you and about you. Who slander you. Who backbite you. Who call down damnation and hell. Upon you. Bless them. 
see how radical what Jesus teaches here is? The, the, the Jews and the Greeks on the streets in Jesus' day didn't even greet each other. That was, of course, something that originated with the Jews. They wouldn't greet the Gentiles, but it was reciprocated. The Gentiles, in return, would not greet the Jews. And Jesus is saying that with the coming of the kingdom, this has to stop. This needs to change. And you can understand why, because the gospel can never be communicated if you discriminate. And we can never give a witness to those whom we despise. In Colossians 4, the Apostle Paul says this in verses 5 and 6, Walk in wisdom toward those who are without, that is, toward unbelievers. And he continues, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you, know, you may know how to answer every man. And in, in Romans chapter 15, verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for good unto edification. Bless them that curse you. As representatives of Christ, we must not only be ready to suffer for his sake, but also to love those who hate and who hurt us. Bless them that curse you. The second thing that Jesus says here as a specific application has to do with acts of kindness toward them that hate us. Do good to them that hate you. Do good to them that hate you. The great example of this in Scripture is David in his response to Saul, who put all the efforts and all the might of the kingdom of Israel into hunting down and killing David. Forget the enemies, he said. Forget national security. Forget the military budget. David is the enemy, and we're going to find him. And for years, Saul put all his effort into finding this one man whom he wanted to kill. And what was David's response? More than once, when God put the life of Saul in his hand. He said, no. These words in Psalm 35 have always struck me from the mouth of David. Perhaps they're written about Saul, but perhaps just a greater pattern and principle that David was very careful about in his life. He says this in Psalm 35, verse 11, false witnesses did rise up. They laid to my charge, things that I knew not, they rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. It was a bitter determination to get him. So how did David respond? He says, as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer returned into mine own bosom. I behave myself as though he had been my friend or brother. I bowed down heavily as one that mourneth for his mother. He didn't say, he had that coming. 
He didn't say, well, I'm glad he's sick. I don't have to worry about him coming after me now. No, he acted like it was his brother, his mother. He mourned. He tore his clothes. And he prayed. Isn't that shocking? Why did he do that? Well, when we look at the stories of David in 1 Samuel, we see that, that this was a part, this response of David was a part of his trust in the sovereignty of God. David had an amazing trust in, in that. He called Saul the Lord's anointed. God forbid that I should stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed. When everyone who was with him wanted to kill Saul, he said, No, God, God has put him on the throne. Yes, God's put him here, but not to deliver him into my hand, but to test my trust in his goodness and his sovereignty. The Lord's anointed. God made him king. And so he returned good for evil. He didn't take vengeance into his own hand. And that was something that was recognized by Saul as well. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 17 and 18, this is what Saul says to David after his life has been spared by David. He lifts up his voice and he weeps. Imagine Saul weeping when he finds out that his life was spared. What a relief. And he says to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me, for as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thy hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good, for that thou hast done to me this day. What a powerful testimony to an unbelieving man. You love them, though they hate you. That could be your neighbor. That could be a family member. That could be your boss in the workplace. That could be someone in a business deal. In a court case, they hate you, and they're out to get you, and you love them, and you do good. What are we showing? That the principles by which the citizens of the kingdom of heaven live are not the principles that are practiced in the earth between men. It won't mean, when we show this kind of love and kindness, that the world stops hating Christians. But it does show, in the midst of a dog-eat-dog -dog world, that the Christian is a peacemaker. And a Christian submits the outcomes to his sovereign God. Put that into practice tomorrow, this week. And what a witness. Love them and do good to them that hate you. And then third, and this is especially striking and shows that this should be a, a deep 
sympathy and affection for unbelievers who perish. Jesus says, pray for them that in hateful ways, despiteful ways, manipulate you, they use you, and they persecute you. Pray for them. Instead of turning your mind to revenge, turn your mind to intercessory prayer. This moves our focus from ourselves, how we've been hurt, and how we can get even to the perishing souls of unbelievers. Pray for them. Lord, open their eyes. Show them your love. Call them to yourself. Help them to see not only their need, but the fullness of Jesus Christ and the wonder of the cross of Calvary to find forgiveness of sins. What a mercy to those who are on the road to hell to pray for them. And then malice and vengeance melts in our souls. Do you pray for those who abuse you because you're a Christian? Do you ask God to have mercy on those who hate His cause by God in His grace bringing them to repentance? Have you prayed in response to being hurt? For the one who's hurt you. And of course this applies not just to enemies of God, but to anyone who is against you at any time in a conflict. Pray for them. What wisdom in Jesus' words here when you're praying for the other person. Then you really cannot harbor bitterness against them. Prayer turns the heart to peacemaking and to love. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. And then we have the reasons in verses 45 through 48. Three reasons. Why are we to do this? The first, so that we may reflect the character of our Heavenly Father as we also know him as our father. The key words in verse 45 are the words children and father, that ye may be the children of your father, which is in heaven. Children reflect the character of their father. And that's what Jesus has in mind in the Sermon on the Mount. You see that in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. They don't become the children of God by being peacemakers, but they reflect, they demonstrate that they are children of God by their peacemaking. The same in verse 48. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. And this, of course, is a result of the work of the Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of adoption, which creates in us a new heart, which makes us like our Father in heaven, born from above, so that we reflect God's own character. 
And without that regenerating spirit, who are we? John 8 verse 44, Jesus says, ye are of your father the devil. Why does he say that? He says that to them because they did the works of the devil and they murdered like the devil and they followed the lies of the devil. And now you, children of the Father in heaven, show something of God's character. What is it of God's character here that is to be reflected in us? Not this, that God loves everyone, but this, that God shows mercy to the undeserving. In his providence, he gives good to all his creatures who are undeserving. And in his saving grace in Jesus Christ, he comes to the unworthy. And indeed, he loves his enemies. And you know that. And I know that. Because while we were yet enemies, he came to us in his Son. Do you know that? If you don't know that, you're in a desperate place. If you don't know that, you can never reflect the character of God here. Following God's example means that we learn to treat people not as they treat us, or as we think they deserve to be treated by us, but with the kindness that God has shown to me in Jesus Christ, in Bethlehem, in Calvary, at the cross. I'm simply reflecting what I know in my salvation. And as I do that, I'm praying. Remember, praying for them. And what am I praying? I'm praying that something of God's love that I've experienced will be their experience as I love them. Think of Stephen being stoned. Father, lay not this sin to their charge. And there was Saul. And he came to know the love that Stephen expressed in that prayer. So it's to reflect something of the character of God in his providence and in the grace of salvation. Second, this command to love our enemies is something that should set us apart from other men. The call to be disciples is a call to extraordinary behavior, an extraordinary love. And I've called attention to this already. But notice here that the contrast between you as a Christian and the world is not this, that the world lives in selfishness, that the world is filled with people who are always hurtful and hateful and violent and unkind. That's not what Jesus says here. He says, no. Publicans and tax collectors, cruel, greedy people, they're good to each other. They know who to treat well. 
They know how to be nice to each other. And here's where the Christian will be different. Not just nice to each other, but love your enemies. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus, as it were, raises the bar higher. In John 13, verse 35, he says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. Now he's saying, this is how you'll be distinguished as a Christian, that you'll have love not one for another, but love for your enemies. And that's how people will know you. That's how you'll be distinguished as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Are you different? Noticeably different? Remarkably different? In this regard? Perhaps it's in the workplace. Someone whose life is completely contrary to the Word of God. And perhaps that someone knows you're a Christian and they give you harsh treatment. And perhaps others in the workplace join with them in the harsh treatment of you. Who loves that person the most? Who is the kindest? Is it you? That's how you'll be different. And of course, this rises out of our love for Christ and our union to Christ. We're different because God has made us different by giving in our hearts the love of God. Finally, verse 48. I have this as a third reason. Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. What Jesus is really doing here is concluding this section of the sermon, taking us all the way back to uh, verse 17 and verse 20. He says in verse 17, I didn't come to destroy the law of the prophets. He says in verse 20, Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now he's saying, God is perfect, and you are called to be perfect as God is perfect. He doesn't minimize the law. He doesn't change the law. He doesn't lower the requirements and the standard of the law. He says, you, you're called to be perfect. Really? Imagine if I finished the sermon tonight with that, listed the commandments that Jesus goes through here and said, now go and be perfect. Because God's perfect. That's what Jesus does. And he's saying this, that as children of God, our Father, verse 48, who is perfect, it should be that we strive for perfection. That we strive for excellence. And that we do that in regard to these commandments as well. Whosoever shall, he says, break one of these least commandments and teach men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So be ye perfect as your Father also in heaven is 
perfect. Now we all feel and we know our failures in regard regard to Jesus' teaching here. Who of us is free of anger without a cause? Who of us is free of lust, of dishonesty, of a spirit of revenge? We all feel the conviction of Jesus' words. But that's exactly the point here. The Word of God, as it comes to us and confronts us with our sin and convicts us of our sin, doesn't condemn us in that sin, but it calls us to be like God. And it creates that in us. That's the power of the convicting Word of God. And in a sense here, what, what, what this verse teaches us, verse 48, is that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ and will perfect you in that work, in the day of Jesus Christ. So don't be discouraged by this, but be encouraged by it. That's what God is doing. God who is perfect is doing. When in the lips of his Son, he says, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Isn't this your desire? as a child of God, to emulate your Father, to strive for holiness, for perfection, to maintain that God is just, right, perfect, holy, and to say it's wonderful that by His grace He conforms me to the image of His Son. So be encouraged. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. Jesus, again, gives us instruction here that's penetrating. Instruction that's, from all human points of view, not only impossible, but ridiculous. But this is the kingdom of heaven. This is what He creates by His Spirit in our hearts. This is the standard that he holds up for us. And this is who he, by his grace and his word, and the power of his spirit applying that word to us, makes us to be. We acknowledge that we don't give a light and a testimony in this regard as we should. And we pray, Lord, that our hearts may be softened in love also for those who are against us. We pray it. For Jesus' sake. Amen.